Hi everyone, my name is Johnny McCormick and you're listening to Spoke. This week it's my absolute honour to sit down for a conversation with one of the most talented writers in the UK. Lyra McKee is an investigative journalist from North Belfast, and alongside having stories published in The Atlantic, Mosaic Science and BuzzFeed News, Lyra is currently working on not one, but two books which will explore some of the unsolved mysteries relating to the Troubles conflict in Northern Ireland. As if that wasn't enough, in 2016 Forbes magazine named Lyra as one of their 30 under 30. And with a list of achievements that includes having a short film made about you, being an award-winning journalist and speaking at a TEDx event, it's easy to understand why. I hope you enjoy listening in on our conversation, but I do need to mention that partway through this episode of the podcast, there are a few expletives, so please be warned if you're sensitive to that or if you're listening around young kids. If you've got any feedback on the show, I'd love to hear it, and you can reach me on Twitter at Johnny McCormick. If you like the show, it would be a huge help if you could give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. Now it's time for me to stop with the intro and for you to sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Lyra, thanks so much for um, joining us on the podcast today. Really excited to have you here. Thank you very much for having me, Johnny. Looking forward to chatting with you as always great i suppose um are you okay if we just jump straight into it then let's go for it great so i um i feel like we know each other reasonably well there we've known each other for a couple of years now which is really nice and um, i always think of you as this sort of top-notch investigative journalist um, Thank you. <laughs> but i suppose one thing i'm interested in is how do you describe yourself so how do you introduce yourself to other people because You've done so much and I've obviously, I'll have done a little bit of an intro at this stage on the podcast and people will know a little bit about all the sort of hats you wear, but how do you introduce yourself to people? Normally I would say I work as a journalist, I work as a journalist because I wear a couple of hats. You know, I work as an editor for a news site in the States, which is my day job. And a lot of the sort of, you know, the deep dive work that I do would tend to be longer pieces and books. So I don't actually get the right stories, like freelance, as much as I want to, because I'm really busy with the editing job and with the book writing. Um, so that that's basically normally how I would introduce myself to people. I mean, I, you know, I absolutely love the work that I do. It's great, great work. Yeah. Um, I'm always sort of conscious. I'm always sort of conscious when I, you know, when I talk about it because the new site that I added, it's like really well known out in the states, out in Silicon Valley in New York. It's a really big name. We get New York Times reporters who read it and send us emails. You know, it's an mm. industry publication out mm. there, but here nobody's heard of it. You right. know, and I feel like I'm only really starting to sort of make a name for myself as a writer, as a journalist. And I suppose too, it's kind of strange because when you're not, because I'm not doing as much freelance work and because I'm working on the book work. And when you're sort of doing those like really reported narratives, like almost like that sort of gonzo journalism, that Hunter S. Thompson style stuff, which is kind of the world that I'm in. Mm-hmm. It's like, do I say I'm a writer or I say I'm a journalist? I don't really know. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of, yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. So normally I just go with journalists. It's yep. the easiest thing to explain. To Everyone say. sort of has a frame of reference for it. Everyone has a frame of reference for it. That's true. Though I'm noticing like like there's a lot of people who would call themselves journalists who, 
you know, I wouldn't say certainly we're journalists, like they don't make their living from journalism, you know, like the Tommy Robinsons of the world and right. whatnot. And I'm like, really, mate, <laughs> you know, but I mean, the word is becoming in some ways misused because we have this alt, literally outright alt media universe, you know, where so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's all, it's all changing, really. So, yeah, so that's a really roundabout way of answering your question. No, sure, it's good. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what investigative journalism is? So I, th- I think just for a lot of people, their frame of reference of journalism is, you know, they go online, they read the BBC, they assume, you know, people there are journalists, they, they pick up the local paper, maybe they assume the people that are producing that are journalists. What exactly is investigative journalism? Like what's what's at the heart of that? What makes that different or what makes it um, differentiated in your mind? I would say investigative journalism is any story that takes you longer than a week to crack, even longer than three days. Most journalists are working on a deadline. they just got to get what the story is by 5 p.m. Do you know what I mean? The answers they have by 5 p.m. The the investigators are the ones who are sort of taking, sitting back and going, taking time out to really dig and do a bit longer, you know, and if you can do that stuff, you're in a really privileged position, you know, the fact that I get the right books, or I'm not getting the right books, you know, I know that I'm in a massively privileged position because most people don't get to do that kind of work, it's yeah. like, you know, it's work that everyone wants to do, but we're time poor and money poor and, yeah. you know, it just doesn't happen as much anymore, so yeah, so for me, it's that work that takes longer than a week to find answers, it's something that's just not easily available, not easily found. So it requires a little bit of digging, potentially a little bit of persuasion from some people. Yeah, it requires a lot of elbow grease. And you know what? There's a lot of the time it's just showing up. That's what it is. It's just having that patience to go and ask the question, to say, I'm open to listen to your story. And it, it amazes me how, you know, like... God knows I've made lots of mistakes over the years in terms of how I've approached people, how, you know, I've, you know, researched a story, like looking back, I think I should have done that this way. And, you know, but the one thing I've learned, I think, is that when you, you know, nothing beats just investing your time. You know, and I find as I get older, I go, you know, when I'm going back to a story, I usually like, oh, yeah, I can call that person. He worked on that investigation for the RUC. I know him or can call this person who it's you start to build your contacts up, you know. Yeah. So would you be able to tell me if you can't, would you be able to give us an example of like a piece of yours that you would consider investigative reporting or investigative journalism and just talk us through what that sort of, what that process looked like? Absolutely. I feel like it, cause I'm not doing as much freelancing these days. So it's like, you'll hear about my work. I mean, my next, my next book's coming out this, my first book's coming out this year and the next one is due out in 2020. Yeah. So I can only hear about my work sort of once every, and then, but every so often I'll sort of, I'll get time to work on something. And there was this one story I did for a Scott a new site which sort of it's new media it's called the ferret but it was run by channel 4 investigative journalist actually i'm not sure if he's still with channel 4 peter deegan uh by rob edwards the guardian's environmental correspondent it's basically a bunch of these journalists together in scotland got together to build this new site and i did this did a couple of pieces for them but one that really sort of haunted me was 
it was on sexual assaults or reports of sexual assaults against police officers in Northern Ireland. You know, for me, the story started... How did that story start? I sort of got it in my head. I was like, I wonder if there's something there. I just had an inkling. I think there was somebody said something to me and I thought, I'm going to check that out. And when I got the data, I found that there was nearly 200 complaints made against police officers over a period of five years regarding sexual assault. But when you really broke it down, 11 officers had been accused at least twice and two of those officers had been accused three and four times each of sexual assault. And no one had been fired from the force. Like, you know, the investigations had ultimately not gone anywhere. And But I'd had a, a, a young, there was a woman who had come forward via a contact of mine because I'd spoken to a contact of mine who knew everyone. He said, just, I know somebody who settled out of court. And literally, this poor woman settled for less than five grand. She was told, basically, this is the this is the price of her silence, essentially. It was, you're going to sign this NDA and, uh, you know, go away, basically. Wow. You know, so even though the police ombudsman investigation into the case, I think, was inconclusive, um, they still signed, you know, they still, PS9 still settled with her because they didn't want the story getting out. Mm. And they... She said, so, yeah, so she signed the end of the year, and that was it. And I was like, well, who else has signed this? And it was a story that, you know, I got the data, so I could see that, obviously, when you have, like, people being accused three and four times each, there's something going on. And these were separate, like, I checked, these were separate complaints that were not linked. Um, and so I, ch- but when I, I could never really, because so many of these, if they're done out of court, then you don't really have a record of them. So it's really, really difficult to find mm-hmm. records of settlements unless you know the individual involved. And, you know, so I spent a lot of time talking to sex workers, trying to find out, you know, was, is this where these survivors are coming from, where the complaints are coming from, because they're the most vulnerable people on the street. But I didn't hear anything to suggest that, that it was among that group. So I got, so, so I did that story and I have to say it did not get the backlash that I thought it would have. And even this PS Nice statement I thought was really worrying because they basically dismissed all the complaints and said, you know, this is nothing, this is unsubstantiated. And it's like, yeah, but we have so many women coming to the police where the complaint is unsubstantiated. It doesn't mean they weren't raped. It doesn't mean they weren't sexually assaulted. It just means that we can't prove it, or you can't prove it. Right. And I thought it was really dangerous language they were using. Yeah. But to me, you know, the silence around that, I mean, it, may, it might have been different if it wasn't a Scottish site. You know, it might have been different. Um, but I, I think, personally, the silence around that was reflective of, the culture we have where especially when it's you know if a woman generally is middle class and white she does a lot better in terms of getting her case progressed forward do you know what I mean the rugby rape trial it was absolutely horrendous but the fact that the survivor was even able the alleged survivor was even able to get her case that far you know I think and for the record I believe her Mm. Um, but the fact that she could even get her case as far as that, I think was probably, you know, I don't think it would have happened for a woman from Ardoin or the Shankill. So Lara, why are some of these stories, the things that you're investigating or the things that you're working on, why are they not getting covered? I think one of the reasons why they're not getting covered, I think it's twofold. One is that, you know, 
journalism. We have, we have amazing reporters here in Northern Ireland. We have some fantastic reporters, you know, scraping back and peeling back things. But, you know, we've seen over the years sort of local journalism has kind of, you know, there's been lack of investment in it and it's really struggled. The daily papers have really struggled, but local journalism especially has really struggled. Mm. But the focus sort of tends to be very much on politics for good reason. But there's just not enough resources to say, say then cover, go down and cover the trickle effect of what's happening in working class communities. Another thing I think is that if you don't come from a working class community, you're not necessarily aware of what's going on in that community or the community, the problems that they face because you don't have, say, relationships which keep you grounded there and keep you connected there. I mean, it's the same way that we, you know, black issues and issues around ethnic minorities are total and their viewpoints are totally underrepresented in media because we it's a very very white dominated industry and if you're a white person what do you know about black issues what do you know about ethnic minorities you know you need the people from that community to be presented and represented in your industry Mm. you know to reflect those viewpoints to reflect those issues um, but as much as it is white dominated, journalism is middle class. So, and, you know, it's one of the issues I find again and again and again. Like I said, there's some brilliant journalists, but I'm always, I'm sometimes astounded by when I talk to people, middle class people in general, they have no concept of what it's like for, to be poor, to be on benefits, to not have a safety net. Like literally, they have none. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. Um, so, and I think that's the other reason why we don't get a lot of coverage of these issues. And thirdly, just that you know, the press can't be everywhere. It's really difficult. You have to sort of go to where the you know the most attention is, and that's going to be at the press conferences, you know, the political cycle, the you know the, what's happening there. Um, I think if we have more investment, you know, in media, you could maybe have reporters sort of embedded in these communities, mm. but. You know, they don't have the investments. They put the resources to where sort of the big things are happening. And then you have the added problem of people in deprived working class communities are very bad at advocating for themselves. You know, there tends to be a helplessness because they've just gone through so much. So they don't think to pick up the phone for their local MLA a lot of the time or their local journalists even. Mm. They don't think about reaching out because they've just learned to accept their lot. So it's sort of like a mix of just many different factors. Right. So you know? on on that subject then, do you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Because it seems that there's this sort of social justice, quest for truth, activism that's linked to your um, journalism or your reporting. Can you share a little bit about what your background is and why those sorts of forgotten issues are the ones that don't get the coverage that maybe they deserve is important to you? I grew I grew up in the Cliftonville Road in North Belfast and I grew up there in the sort of the nineties, two thousands. Yeah. You know, and I went to school in Ardoin. Went to high school there and then I went to the tech. And I guess I I mean when you grew up in a single parent family, I suppose you grew up with a sense of outrage. Yeah. Because you just, I think that was the difference between me and my friends. Because my friends were used, were just accepted it. That this was how things were, and I couldn't get my head. That re- it irked me. I couldn't get my head. I just didn't think it was right. That you know that we were so poor that we had nothing. You know that we had no that that we didn't seem to have any prospects. 
that when we weren't middle class, it's you know it did certainly. I even remember in primary school perceiving that there was a difference in how the middle class treated to the working class kids. Right. So yeah. for someone that's not from Northern Ireland or Belfast, what do you mean by you grew up in the Cliftonville Road and went to school in Ardoin? Like contextualize that for someone that's not familiar with it. What does that, well, what does uh, that mean? I often tell Americans that Ardoin is probably, if you've seen images of Belfast on fire in the 90s, you were probably seeing Ardoin in the Cliftonville yeah. or, you know, those areas in North Belfast, the interface areas. Um and Cliftonville Road was just off a place called Murder Mile. That was the nickname, uh, Antrim Road, because that was where a lot of the casualties happened during the conflict. In fact, the BT-14, which is the Cliftonville Road, essentially that whole stretch, it says more ca- casualties there per square mile than any part of Northern Ireland wow. during the conflict. Yeah. You know, so it was... Like, as I remember it. I mean, the people were... Um, you know, people were mostly decent people, but it was a tough, tough place, you know. And the struggle, like, for with everything from poverty to mental health to, you know, people were dealing with the legacy of the troubles. And the thing is, I sometimes get angry at people because we talk about the wars if it ended, the conflict ended in 1998. But if you lived in North Belfast, it actually probably didn't end properly to about, I would say, to about 2005, 2006. People were still living in fear. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, there was still, I mean, in ninety, in the, sorry, in the last hours of ninety seven, going on to ninety eight, we had a mass shooting in the Clifton Tavern on the Cliftonville Road. Mm. Do you mean it's one of the? I think one, probably one of the last mass shootings of the Troubles, just before the peace process, happens right in the heart of that community, and that has a big impact, and it's felt there for years. You know, you still remember the rocks flying over the peace wall yeah. at down where Rosa Pana was. Um, you know, the fear linger, the fear lingers on. So even though, you know, the, yeah, the troubles are technically over, you know, the people are still actually dealing with the fallout from it. It's still going on. And I think there's, that gets really forgotten about. I mean, Daniel McColgan killed in 2001. Postal worker up in Newton Abbey, um, Robert McCartney, Paul Quinn, you know, all these people who, you know, the sect, you know, the murders continue yeah. after 98 and that, that community, those communities like Northwest Belfast and markets or, you know, they, the short strand, they continue to suffer, you know, and I think so, um, so yeah, so that's really where I'm talking about. If you were to ask, say, my friends who were growing up around that time, like, what do you remember about the conflict? And I think they would say that, you know, they didn't, probably that they don't, I would think they would say they didn't remember too much because they take it sort of for granted. Do you know what I mean? Like the presence, the constant presence of the, the police jeeps always patrolling the area. <laughs> You know, but like I remember things like, you know, okay, there's a suspect device on Rosa Pena. Just be careful when you're walking to school, they're looking for a suspect device. And that would have been the early 2000s. Um, But again, I think when you look at that community at that time, again, it's the context. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, you have a generation that's grown up that definitely hasn't seen the worst of the troubles. they They are living through the aftermath of it and they mightn't always understand that you know this is connected to this you know this you know my daddy died by suicide because 
you know, X, Y, and Z, or, you know, they can't always trace it back, but it's certain, the impact is certainly there. And there's certainly, like I said, we certainly didn't see the worst of the troubles, but the last of the troubles happened in that community, in those communities. Yeah. So it wasn't just a sort of a monumental switch overnight. I think everyone agrees it was this sort of monumental, you know, moment for Northern Ireland, certainly a really yeah, watershed but, moment, but the, the lived realities of some people yeah, didn't change that much. They, I, it really angers me when we say nineteens, and I, and I know I'm going to end up writing it in one of my books because, you know, the historical benchmark is 1969 to 98. But yeah, for it, the peace didn't come overnight to those communities, and peace still isn't in those communities. Now they're living with the threat of dissident Republicans, go up north to Valley Sill, and they're living with the threat of loyalist paramilitaries. You know, so we've got peace in some ways. I think the peace we have is a peace that doesn't disrupt the lives of the middle classes. But for the working classes, you know, they're still struggling. The struggle's slightly different, but it's still happening. They're still struggling. They're still living with the fear of paramilitaries, kneecappings, all the punishment beatings, all of that. Yeah. So we've talked a few times about this idea of truth, Lyra. Um, do you want to say a little bit about what, what truth means to you in this context of investigative journalism and then also I suppose in the if we zoom out a little bit the macro context of where the media is today it seems you know people talk about this idea of being in a post-truth world what's that what does truth mean to you as someone who's in the trenches doing some hard investigative reporting I think there's truths and there's narratives the truth is what actually happened and the narrative is what everyone think happened and the two are often completely at odds with each other and I see that play out with social media all the time, you know, with how it's amazing to me how things can become like so distorted and beyond the truth and then just become the accepted narrative, you know, because now we have Twitter, we have Facebook, so basically everyone can create their own narrative, you know. And so when Trump says that the New York Times reporting is fake news and the New York Times is a news institution with over a century of, I think over a century, yeah, over well over a century of hard news reporting, of verifying facts, you know, and yet the president can dismiss them overnight as being fake news, you know what I mean? Man who lives in a gold-plated elevator, you know, is the, you know, is the opposition to the elites, the swamp, you know, Yes, I think when we're talking about truth, I think we talk about post-truth, and I'd say, no, I think what we're really talking about is those two different things. It's truth and narratives. So what do, you, what do you think differentiates truth from a narrative? Like, what would, you, would your definition of truth be? The truth is what actually happened, and the narrative is what people think happened. Right. And the two are rarely the same. So Sometimes how, they're the same. But So how do you balance that as a as a reporter, as a journalist, or as an, as an author, how do you balance this idea of bringing what actually happened compared to what maybe you think happened or what other people think happened? The pro- I think you just have to grit your teeth and say, well, this is what I know to be true. This is what I've seen. And if people don't like it, people don't like it, but I can stand over it, you know? I mean, it, I think it's getting harder and harder and harder because, you know, the truth quote marks has become like a choose your own adventure story and people pick the truth that confirms their belief and what they want to believe and very you know we need to start teaching news literacy and critical thinking i think in schools i don't think that's happening enough where we teach people how to distinguish between fake news and what fake news is and so on yeah 
you know? Yeah, so it's that idea of confirmation bias. If you yep. already think something's true, you're going to find exactly. evidence and facts to support that. Exactly, you know? And it often, at times, it does not matter when we chat, if you challenge the facts, it's like, you're, oh, it's because you're covering it up. You know, right. like we've seen this with Pizzagate, you know what I mean? And we've seen it all over the world, you know, in different, well, we've seen it certainly in American and UK society. Certainly we've seen it play out. Um, in terms of what we do, I think we need to go root and branch, you know, start teaching this stuff from primary school level, hmm. teaching people how to distinguish between facts, you know. Are you, are you hopeful for the state of journalism, Lyra? I, I suppose the reason I'm, I'm asking that is that, um, you know, the rise of clickbait, so, that you know, an intriguing headline that, doesn't really have a lot of substance behind it or some newsrooms who are cranking out, you know, an article every 15 or 30 minutes that isn't really maybe fact-checked as hard as it should have been and then gets updated later. Like, what's what's the state of media uh, looking you like know, for you now? People complain about clickbait and about bad reporting and shoddy reporting. We always had clickbait and we always had shoddy reporting. It just came in a different form. And we didn't have then maybe the two, you know... The tools to kind of recognise it, what it was. It's I think it's only it's the economic problems of journalism have been sort of brought it into sharp relief, mm. or sorry, have brought it into um, have highlighted it, mm. have made us more aware of it. But it was always there. Do you know what I mean? You always had bad reporting, <laughs> you know, and clickbait and reporters who might like my favourite story um, is of I'm not name him, but it's of a certain reporter who apparently used to tell his editors that he was going up the mountains to train with the provost and would go to one of their training camps and he would take himself off on holiday for three weeks <laughs> to Spain and would come back and write a totally fictional and all his colleagues knew that he did it but you know, this has always happened it's no different but equally I think in the age that we're living in we're seeing some of the best reporting since Watergate do you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, from the tr- the teams covering Trump, the reporting that is happening there, like we, if anything, I think we're actually seeing a resurgence in journalism because mm. the fourth estate really is the opposition at this point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We've. I think they were lulled for a long time. They were in a false sense of security. You know, Trump has been good for journalism in a lot of ways because he woke them up. Yeah. It woke the world up to what was happening with the people of colour. And because he was so brash about it, yeah. he didn't hide behind niceties. So what what you excites know? you about the world of journalism or writing nowadays? Podcasting. I think podcasting's huge. Um, you know, we're seeing the rise <laughs> hint, of... Hint, hint. Hint, hint. We're seeing the rise of things like, you know, The Daily, uh, S-Town, um, just all these different forms of storytelling. is absolutely amazing. Um, some of the best books are being written right now, I think. Some of the some fantastic books and reporting coming out, you know. And some of the best, you know, yeah, some of the greatest talents, I think, are coming to the fore right now, you know. There has been a real, I think, you know, Trump is a horrible human being, but he reminded, I think, the press of their role, you know. There was too much sort of decorum, so it was a bit of a wake up call for them. Do you it think? was a wake up call, yeah. I mean, you know, because they're aggressively going after him in a way that I haven't seen them go after a president in a long time. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, look at how happened with the Iraq war. I don't think Iraq would the Iraq coverage would happen under Trump. 
because they scrutinise him too heavily. Mm. Did it happened with the Bush administration because they weren't scrutinising it enough? They just took it, you know, as you know, for granted that we weren't being lied to. <laughs> right. You know. Yep. So um, actually, I think that the future journalism is really good. It's just that the model is changing, and I think that's what scares people. It's that newspapers, you know, we're moving away from print. You know, print, like we already have, like, you know, some of the bigger papers talking about when there's going to be a sunset in print that is coming. Yeah. You know? So, so do you think that there's a sustainable model out there for journalism that isn't paid for? Um, that's a very, very good question. I actually think paid for journalism is one of the, is one of the best models. The subscription model is one of the best. The reason I think that is because Journalism has always had trouble with advertisers, you know, with advertisers, um, you know, story, like certainly I had, sto- as a young freelancer, I had stories spiked on me because advertise, you know, would have upset the advertiser, you know, and this was like small scale stuff. Like there was a, dr- I remember one story I would try to get out, there was a drugs bust at a local nightclub, you know, and I, I knew that it was a gay nightclub, so I knew the community, I knew what was going on and nobody had actually this was at probably about 10 years ago, maybe, actually just under 10 years ago. So um, so I was able to, I was going to go do this story because, you know, nobody else was covering it. And it was sort of significant in different ways. And But I was told, oh, we can't do that. They're an advertiser, <laughs> you know, or they're, they were part of a chain. I don't know if they were part of a chain of clubs and the clubs advertised or whatever. But, you know, so this, I think advertising has always been an iffy model, but especially in the online world, it's iffy. It just provides too little return and it drives the quality down because you have to produce en masse, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, the New York Times is doing some of the best journalism it's ever produced. And I think it's because of the subscription model. Right. You know, I think it's given them a boost. I think it's given them new lease of life, yeah. you know, partly, yeah. along with the Trump bump. Yeah. You know, so I think subscription, to me, paying for it is actually, I think that's one going to be one of the key you know, revenue streams. Yeah. Um, but I think there's others, in ter- like like books, you know. Yeah. Um, when I, you know, like when I started out, I was like, I want to be a newspaper reporter, you know, and all that. And then I realized I really don't like being on daily deadline. I hate it. I like being able to wander off. And I think if I lived in America, I probably would have ended up working for like a magazine. Um, you know, I would, yeah, I would end up working for a magazine or a, you know, one of those alt-weekly types mm-hmm. where I have a bit more freedom, yep. you know. I think books are going to be another great revenue stream for us because, we're see- again, we're seeing the rise of narrative journalism. So people are getting really, really taking an interest in it again. Like, I think news, you know, it shouldn't be boring, mm. you know. But we've always had, if you, when you go to journalism school and when you're starting out, they teach you how to write and you're taught how to write copy in less than 600 words or 800 words, and you know your 20 line opener, your 20 sorry, your 20 word opener, and then you introduce your quotes. It's all very formulaic, and that's dull, you know. And I think it's one of the problems around news is we don't always have enough engagement. But then you have a a news story that has maybe a personal tone, or that sort of brings the reader into it, like like almost like it's a movie that's unfolding, you know, like a plot that's unfolding beneath your eyes, like a novel, then people are automatically interested. So if you look at, like, the traction that sites like Long Reads and Long Form and the Sunday Long Read get, you know, people are really interested in that kind of work. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I just think it's changing and it's shooting off into different 
little, you know, formats yep. and, you know, yep. likes sure. of Axios, for example, bullet news and bullet form, yep. you know. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Lyra. Um, people might look at you and think, you know, two book deal under your belt, two books coming out in the next couple of years, you know, written quite a few high profile um, investigative pieces look at you as a success within the field um, what's your what's your secret uh, yeah not a success <laughs> um, I um, oh no I'm definitely not a success I have a long way to go ahead of me you know I mean I'm still chasing my dreams <laughs> you know I want to be I've gotten I've gotten to where I'm really happy with where I've gotten to it's a dream come true you know the actual dream obviously would be like to be a best selling author <laughs> that would be the dream um so no, I definitely wouldn't say I'm a success. But if you're asking me, like, how, you know, how did you get a two book deal? How did you do that? You know, I think, you know, you said something interesting to me earlier. You said like people look at you and think, God, you're like an overnight success. You got this two book deal and blah blah blah, and then the other book, the other book deal with the local publisher. And but it's like it's an overnight success, but it's been probably over ten years. Well, 13 years, hard work. I sort of figured out about six years ago that I wanted... I'd always wanted to write a book, but I didn't know when the right time was. And about six years ago, I decided I was going to finally do it because I'd always wanted to be a writer. But I love non-fiction. You know, that was my passion. And it took... Yeah, it's taken six years of graft to get to this point. Um, so in terms of, like, you know, if you want to be a writer, what, what do I do? Well, start writing and just, you know what, have a goal... Just take one step every single day. You know, for me, it's it can be like just writing 500 words. So you need to. Or this week, I'm going to send, I'm going to write 500 words a day and I'm going to have three chapters and then I'm going to send them to this literary agent and I'm going to send one proposal a week to the agent every week until I get a response. You know? Yeah. So much of it is just knocking at the door until it's opened. Or climbing through the window, whatever you have to do. Yeah. Um, you know, again, as I said, I definitely wouldn't class myself as a success. I have a long, long way to go. But I think, you know, like I'm, you know, I like I have. If I look back for the last three years, like it's it's been really tough. You know, it's been really, really tough. You know, I don't often talk about this. Like I have mental health issues. I have anxiety disorder. And I really struggle with that. And sometimes writing is like almost, it's my great, one of my greatest loves, but also my biggest fear. Mm. I choke up. Like I literally, I feel sick sometimes when I sit down at that computer because I'm like, oh God, what's coming today? Like, you know, what, what reactions is this going to get? Who's going to slabber about this? Blah, blah, blah. And you get the, you know, it can cripple you, you yeah. know? And the, but you just keep showing up and you just keep doing the work. And if you're determined, you know what, write your goal down the piece of paper, what you wanted. Last year, that was what I did. I said, I want to get a literary agent this year. I've got to get a literary agent, you know, because I'm, I can't, I'm trying to get a publisher and I keep falling, you know, falling flat in my face, all of that. And so I'd, I'd been really lucky. I so I wrote this down this week. I said, I want, "I'm going to get a literary agent. I need a literary. Please, universe, help me get a literary agent." And two days later, I get this email from an editor that I'd worked with in London, and she was like the loveliest person. And I'd met her by total accident because I was speaking at a conference, and she'd asked me to pitch her work. 
and she said, I was at an event and I bumped into a literary agent who told me, was complaining to me that all his young writers keep leaving him to go to America. And he's looking for more young writers for his books. And I said that I would introduce you. And he emailed me and he said, I'm really hoping that you're not, not um, you're not already represented by someone, because if not, I would love to represent you. Wow. And that was how I got my literary agent. And then the agency turned out, I always tell people, I'm like the least famous person on their books because <laughs> they have like I mean one of the so I forget her exact name but my agent represents one of the ladies from Pussy Riot um, one of the other clients at the agency is the um, author of do you know Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Yeah it's the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Thomas Harris. Wow. He's um, Thomas Harris he's based at um, he, yeah he's with the agency so and it was just a mind-blowing they had an office in london and new york and it was like oh my god this is incredible you know but listen i'm a kid from north belfast i dropped out of university i've got five gcse's to my name do you know what i mean i you know when i was young i used to have a hearing impediment but they didn't realize that that was why i couldn't speak properly and i were they were going to send me to a special needs school until they got an educational psychologist in and they figured out that actually the problem was my hearing. But throughout school then I was sort of labelled as the, you know, I was like, you know, I was always in, I was in remedial classes for reading and writing. I didn't learn to read and write properly probably until I was six or seven. Mm. You know, my reading and writing was always really poor. I was in and out of classes throughout primary school. But I loved to read. I just wasn't very good at it, you yeah. know. I... You know, I couldn't even sit my 11 plus because I was so, it was transfer test at that time. But I was, again, I was just so stressed out by the work. I failed every exam. Uh, one of my primary school teachers told my mum she'll never make it beyond her GCSEs. You know, another said, you know, she's not that bright. Mm. <laughs> Mightn't be bright, but I'm stubborn. <laughs> That's, you know. Yeah. So yeah. the one thing I would say is, hang on, listen then. Listen, do not fucking listen to bullshitters and naysayers. See if you want to do it. You go do it and don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether you think you're stupid or not. I thought I was convinced I was stupid until I was 11. I had this, I was really like, I really believed I was stupid. I remember having this, um, because I've been told I was stupid by most of the teachers who had been past through primary school. And I had two really good teachers who had nurtured my love of reading, but the others sort of just didn't sort of see anything in me you know and I get told that it wasn't bright and most of my you know most of my um parent teacher reports were Lyra is you know very polite in class but very inattentive tends to daydream a lot not very academic you know that was like the story of every and I remember in matching P4 we had this amazing teacher called Mr O'Neill and Mr O'Neill was just the loveliest man and he made you love storytelling he used to act it out when he was teaching you history he was teaching us with Coo Holland the Hound of Ulster this old Celtic warrior and he brought in his hurley bat and his slatter to show us how Coo Holland played hurley and he was amazing and he told us that there's a story about how Coo Holland had a piece of salmon and suddenly became really wise and my poor mum, like, we were on benefits, but I told her, I went home and I said, Mum, you have to go get me some salmon, right? <laughs> and she was like, what? I was like, I have to get me some salmon. So for, like, a little 
triangle shaped, like almost like no bigger than a Derry Lee triangle sized <laughs> bit of salmon. It cost her seven pounds, which was really expensive when you're on benefits. And she bought, but she bought me and I ate it. And then I tried to do my maths homework and I started crying. So, mommy, it didn't make me smart. I still can't do my maths homework. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, but I was so convinced as a child that, you know, I was stupid because that's what I've been told. Like, and my mum and my grand. Granny had all these women in my life who would contradict that, but you know, it's like when you hear it from when you're a working class kid, you know, it's like the teachers know everything, you mm. know what I mean? They, you know, and whatever. So I but when I got to high school, I never forget I had a teacher who was just absolutely amazing and she read something I'd written one day and she told me said to me, You have a gift. I was like, What? Yeah, you're a good writer. And I was like, it was the first time in my life I could remember somebody telling me that I was, like a teacher telling me that I was good at something, wow. like something that yeah. mattered. Like, because people told me I was good at reading, you know, because I went from being in the remedial class to reading books, you know, that like that was progress, mm. you know. Mm. But nobody had ever told me, like to me this is like, oh, I'm, I'm good at something useful, I can write. And that was just it for me. That was the bug. And so, yeah, and from there I I ended up going, I got my A-levels, two years to be, got to uni, but was bored and dropped out. (laughs) But, you know, when I look back at my own history, like, it's very much like, you know, people think, might look and think, oh, you're such a success. I cannot tell you how many times I fell flat in my face. Mm. You know, I did not listen. I was net. There was never any indication that I was anything, you know, special. And I would still say I'm not anything special. The only difference between me and someone else is I'm a cockroach. <laughs> you can't kill me. I swear <laughs> to God, I, I'll just keep getting up again. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. care how many times you hit me. Yeah. I'll just keep getting up. You know, and that's just the mo- that's the most important thing. If you can just keep getting up every time you get knocked down, just keep doing it. You can, you know, you can be anything you want to be, and I truly do believe. I do believe that. I don't care what anyone says. I think if you got the will and the determination, you will make it happen. And it may take years, and t- it took me years, but you'll do it. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that, there. That's really, it's a really inspiring story. I think. Um, Speaking of inspiring then, I suppose I'm interested to hear who some of your inspirations are, like who are some of the people that have had the most impact in your life and why was that? I would say firstly, I would say my first year English teacher, she was amazing. She, you know, just set that off in my head. It was the first, like I said, the first time. But the other person I would have to say, like my mum was amazing. My mum was great. You know, I love my mum. My mum always said, you can be anything you want to be. You know, I just didn't believe her until I was much older. Um, but I always had that drilled in my head. But I would say there was two. And my, my big sister as well. My big sister's amazing. She's an English teacher and she works with the kids from deprived areas. And she's absolute absolute hero. Um, but there's two women who sort of always stuck out in my head. And one was my granny and one was J.K. Rowling. I've told this story before. but my So my granny was this wee woman. She was, you know, she'd left school at 14. And she could read the paper, but she couldn't really write. And she told me she knew how to write her name, mm. just for signatures, but that she couldn't really write otherwise, you know. And my granny used to, she used to, like, I remember even as a child, for my fourth birthday, she got me this hardback copy of a book called The Secret Garden. 
And I like if I, I must find it, but I remember seeing it years later, and I just scribbled on it because I couldn't write. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even yeah. that age, I couldn't write. I couldn't write my own name. Didn't know my alphabet. All that. But my granny used to buy me books, and she'd tell me when I was a really young. Like I remember being six years old and being on the phone with my granny, and my granny saying, "You're going to be a writer," and I was like, "No, I'm not granny. Why would you think that?" Mm. And there was no, I had no idea where my granny got this idea from because there was nothing to suggest that I was going to be a writer. You know, like I was only learning to speak at that yeah, point, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. But my granny had this inner head. My granny was this great character. She was kind of like Hyacinth Bouquet, you know, <laughs> like yeah, keeping up appearances. Yeah. That was my granny, you know, and I loved her. But she really, like she was from, she was from Dairy Woman, you know, and but yeah she always had this in her head and for my ninth birthday she said to me I got you two books for your birthday and I was like okay granny where are the books I said they're called Harry Potter and I was like and the girl of Waterstone she says every, says everyone's reading them so I got you them because my granny she used to go into Waterstones to find things for me to read every Saturday when she was in the town and I was like okay granny and I swear I don't think there wasn't a paper out of me after my birthday for like in the month or something that I read those books like, wow. I was so quiet, and I remember sitting reading them, because we were staying over at my granny's, and my mum said, there hasn't been a word out of her since she got that book. <laughs> is, there, is there any more of them? <laughs> is there any more? Where's the rest? When's the third one coming out? <laughs> and, oh, my granny was so funny. Like, we, she used to come, she was the oldest person in the queue at Waterstones whenever the books came out, yeah. you know? And she used to say, I'll buy you one for every year I live, I'll buy you one, you know? And um, she... Um, she used to cut out clippings of J.K. Rowling. So if she'd seen J.K. Rowling in the paper doing an interview, she'd cut it out. Like, I never forget one day I get this, Lara, your granny's on the phone. And I go, okay, hi, what's up, granny? I just seen J.K. Rowling on the TV and she was bad at maths too. Just like you, she was bad at maths. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, but at the time, like looking back, I'm like, oh my God. But at the time I was really excited about this. I was like, J.K. Rowling was... She was, yeah, she was really bad in school, just like you. And I was like, really? Yeah. Wow, okay. And my granny would say, and she's a single parent, because I was from a single parent family, and she didn't have any money, and look at her now, and you can be just like her. And I was like, granny, she's a millionaire. Like, I'm not going to be just like her. But my granny was always bad. Like, she came home with a biography of J.K. Rowling one day and said, I found this in the bookstore for you. Yeah. And you read that. Yeah. You can be just like her. And my granny was convinced of this. And she literally used to save these newspaper clippings every week. Yeah. And I think it might have been the fifth or... It was the fifth or sixth book, I think, was My Granny Had Died. She bought me the, you know, the third and fourth. But she died by the fifth or sixth book. I think it was the year that it was coming out. And I went to go and buy it mm. and put my name down to know it was going to go pre-order. And we found out that it had already been pre-ordered wow. two weeks before my, gra- my granny had died wow. she'd went down into the town and put the pre-order in for me wow. so it was sort of like what a special memory it, yeah it is and but for me it was like you know harry potter like it was such a great part of my childhood i know everyone says that what a great part of their childhood it was mm. for me also it was the realization that there the, someone looked like me could write Mm. You know, like, uh, you know, a woman from a single-parent family and she had no money and and she became a writer. And so by the time, like, you know, I came to the realisation two years later that I could write, I was like, oh, okay, then I can do this. Because mm. my teacher says I can and J.K. Rowling can and says, you know, J.K. Rowling can do it. And that, 
you know, as a child, like having those working class role models is really, I think, important for children, especially when you could, in the community that I came from, like this was a community where I had to say, like there is one of the greatest problems I think face in working class communities is that there's a real poverty of vision. So when a working class kid says, you know, I want to be a lawyer, they're told, get back in your station. You're not going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a glue sniffer. And I literally heard that said to people. Mm. You know what I mean? Why would you study for your GCSEs? You're not going to be a drug dealer. Mm. You know, people were, if somebody wanted to be a lawyer, they were laughed at. Like, I remember my childhood best friend saying, like, you know, I want to be a singer. And he could have done it. I mean, he, I still can amazing talent and but I remember people saying now nah, he's going out to work when he leaves school that's yeah. it he's going out no nah, we're going to and I thought if he was middle class it would have been right he's going to do his high level music and then we'll get him into a music production degree at Queen's Th- that's what would have been because he got talent he's smart he's really special he's going places but he's working class it's you're going to be a singer don't be daft you're going to go work you're going to work on a building site and bring in money every week. You're leaving after your DCSEs. Why even bother in studying for them? Yeah. You know, that was, was a totally different response to how we treat working class kids to how we treat middle class kids. It sounds like I'm just thinking back to what you were saying about, um, you know, the influence that your granny had on you and JK Rowling. It sounds like you had these sort of special people in your life almost to look up to or who were looking out for you, pushing you into that. So you've mentioned that poverty of vision they were almost pushing you into that vision even when you didn't believe yep absolutely from my mom to my granny to my high school teachers they were amazing they were all amazing they believed in me when I didn't believe in me certainly Mm. and I think that's the difference is that I was told to have ideas above my station yep then the people around me told me I should have ideas above my station so when people were making fun of me for wanting to go to university or whatever it was you know I had people saying listen to that no you go do it you go do it you know because that is the response to many working class kids they, they get and I, again I've heard it again and again they get laughed at when they you know when they if they aspire to anything beyond you know the building there's not don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with going working on the building site or going working in a shop if that is what you want to do you know if you if it's something that you want to do if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, want to be a writer, it shouldn't be denied to you mm. just because you're from Manor Street. Mm. You know what I mean? That shouldn't matter. But I noticed there's a massive difference in how we socialise working class kids versus how we socialise middle class kids. So middle class kids, and I, because I've heard this when I meet them, like they literally, they do, they believe that they take it for granted they're going to university. They take it for granted that they're going to be lawyers and doctors and engineers because they've been told from their new age that they deserve these things. You're the cream, you know, the creme de la creme. You are the brightest ones. You are going to do this, you know, and they go and they take their place in these professions. Whereas working class kids are made to feel as if they're taking up space when if they want to go do that, if they're getting ideas above their station, they're not good enough to go to university, not good enough to be a doctor, you know? It's a totally different, the way even teachers speak to them often is completely different. And I've seen that play out, that dynamic play out too. Yeah. It's almost the the need, some more of those people in their life, like like you had. I was lucky. To reach some of the potential. For me, Johnny, it, it was pure luck. 
Do you know what I mean? I had great people. I've had great people around me. Right up even to adulthood. You know, I had reporters like Chris Moore, Suzanne Breen, uh, Dara McIntyre, um, filmmaker Ali Miller, Kathy Johnston, Liam Clark. I had amazing people around me who looked after me, mm. who helped me, who basically coached me. You know, I was so lucky. I was always falling upwards, even through the hard times. You know, I always sort of... I just had great people around me who helped me. Yeah. You know? And, you know, your work speaks for itself now. I think you do. You know, I think you're a fantastic writer. And oh, thank I'm you. certainly going to, um, in the show notes on the website, I'll post two of my favourite things that you've written. Okay. Um, but I suppose one thing I want to ask you is if people could only read one article or one piece that you've written so far, what's the one that you're most proud of or what's the one that you'd want them to find out about and we can link to it that is a really good see I do have one favourite but I suppose the one that I, I really wanted people to know about was the sexual assaults one the P, you know the PSNI story because I just feel that that didn't get I will actually it's funny with any story I've done on sexual assaults I have noticed that so often it doesn't get a response did a story on the Rape Crisis Centre years ago for Private Eye on its closure and why it was closed and it, the response is totally muted and you know I just I've noticed that and so I suppose it would probably be that I would love people to read that story yeah they ask questions about why this has happened why is this allowed to happen like what's going on here yeah you know there needs to be answers yeah I always like to um, getting towards wrapping up now there's one um, final question I want to ask you okay. and then I always like to finish with a couple of quick fire questions so some okay. either ors but the question um, that I ask everyone is if your house was on fire you know heaven forbid obviously but family pets everyone gets out safely what's the one thing that you're going to grab on the way out what's the one the one item that you're going to save my laptop and my notebook your laptop and your notebook years worth of work there yeah and it's I haven't typed my notes up so for a month. <laughs> so if a month's worth of work on my latest book went out, I'd be screwed. You know? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Lara. So I've got, um, I've got four quick fire questions for you. Okay. Don't need a lot of response. Don't need a lot of thinking. Um, okay. So I'm just going to fire into them. Is that okay? Okay. Reading or watching telly? Reading. You thought about that? I'm surprised you actually thought about that. That's interesting. Are you a countryside or a city person? Oh, both. Both? Both. I couldn't live in the countryside because I hate silence. I need the ambient noise of the city at night. Yeah. You know? But, but you couldn't do without it either? I couldn't do without it either. I love the countryside. I just don't like driving along at night time. <laughs> yeah. Favourite social media platform and why? I'm going to say... Mm, that's a good question. I'm going to say Instagram because the community is really friendly. Yep, great, thank you. And final one, what's your most annoying habit? Oh my God, you'd have to ask my girlfriend this. She'd have a <laughs> list. Um, actually, ask my mum this, she would have a list. <laughs> my most annoying habit. What would they be saying if I asked them? I, I have OCD, so I do things repetitively, so I will lock the doors 18 times. Right. <laughs> you just want to make sure it's definitely locked? I need it to be just definitely locked. 
Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But. Great. Thank you. So before we sign off today, I'm eager to give you a chance just to tell people where they can find out more about you. So share if you've got a website or any social handles or like how can people find out a little bit more about Lear McKee? I really should get myself a website together because I've got <laughs> books coming out. It's twitter.com, Lyra, L-Y-R-A, McKee. You'll basically find me there, you yep. know, hovering most yep. of the time. And observing. you're a pro- prolific tweeter. Uh, somewhat. I've, I've dialed it back. I've dialed it back. I find it's not good for productivity to get sucked into that. You know? <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much for your time, Laura. Thank you so much, Johnny, for having me. Thank you.